Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday morning, middle of Hanukkah. Uh, I'll going to talk about the Pasha today, get out in, in, especially in time. Uh, I was all out of sponsors this week, but uh, thank God uh, Dr. Morris Friedman, my good friend, student in Muncie, is sponsoring the one today uh, in honor of, in memory, I'm sorry, of his good friend Yoni Cohn in Chicago. I appreciate it. I uh, hope... We'll get other sponsors so I can do. I, if it, if I have the opportunity, I'm going to try to do the um, Torah, of course, and I have something to say about Hanukkah as well. Um, I'll see if that works out. Uh, if if there anybody's interested in helping, but uh, to turn my attention to the parsha today, uh, which is Mikates, which always falls out on Hanukkah. Well, I'm not right, right? It's, it's not true. Mikates doesn't always fall on Hanukkah. We actually have. Situation this year where it, it comes in right after Hanukkah. I'll talk about that more probably when it comes to the Haftorah. But uh, it's around this time usually. And let's put it this way. This week is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of Mikates. So it is happening always to do with Hanukkah. And uh, it always strikes me that you have juxtaposed the Hanukkah story and the Joseph story and the Hanukkah story. Uh, sort of the antithesis, but I'll tell you what I mean. Yosef had a talent for knowing how to get along in the Geisha world without giving up his Judaism. That's, to my mind, the outstanding character, character, excuse me, characteristic of Joseph. What makes Yosef so special? From a strictly frummy perspective, you can say like this. The fact is, Yosef had started because he resisted Eshes Potiphar. That's, what he's, that's a very narrow way of looking at it. Uh, the story of him and the, the wife of Potiphar is actually nothing but iconic representation of the fact that although there it appeared in a sexual form, but Bechalal, whenever you have Jews uh, in a heavy and thick non-Jewish environment, you know, a thick culture, like Egypt was, not some stupid culture like the peasants of uh, Ukraine, but, you know, a, a, a thick major culture. So there's always the seductive aspect of it, the temptation aspect of it. doesn't have to be a sexual thing. In the case of Yosef, the story brings it out beautifully, and brilliantly in in a sexual way, because that's a Matthias, right? And there's plenty of that. Uh, as we all know, Aisha's Potiphar is a big problem in the workplace today. I mean, it, it just is what it is. But in general, even if it doesn't assume that specific form, the idea of a Jew being drawn towards that sort of thing, he kind of can't help it, uh, is something that we all live with. And the fact that Yosef was able somehow to, to negotiate that successfully is... Um, his outstanding characteristic. So as we know, Yosef in this week's Parsha rises to Viceroy. He gets an Egyptian name. He's given a Cadillac. He's given a, a supreme power. He's even given an Egyptian wife. The whole nine yards. Uh, he obviously speaks Egyptian and so on and so forth. And somehow relatives a Shammah Shabbos, as we would say today. Uh, so much so that the father will be shocked. Uh, it's hard to believe when, when Yaakov meets them and he asks, these are my children, and Parshavayichib, 
and you know their name is Menashe Ephraim, and so on and so forth. So, wow, they grew up in America, know about baseball, and yet they they, they were the Shomer Mitzvahs. You know what I'm saying? So Yosef is a virtuoso on this. My point is as follows: Each of the tribes, we believe, has their pluses and minuses, has their special talents. Um, if the divine providence so ordained matters that it was Joseph who should end up in Egypt, although that was not what the brothers had in mind, they thought they'd kill him, uh, it means that he's the one who's able to handle it. Uh, had Ruvain or Levi even, you know, uh, ended up in Egypt, they would they would have cracked. You understand? That's just fascinating. Levi's real from, uh, Yehuda's real from, you know, associated with Torah. Just because a guy knows that I learned doesn't mean that they're going to be able to resist the temptations of Egypt. Or I, that's not the right word. The pressures of society. The pressure of society. That's a special Nisayan of its own. You and I live it. Uh, if you're in Israel, it's a little different. Although they have theirs, but it's a little different. But certainly if you live in the USA, and also those who of my listeners who listen around the world in different countries, you know what I'm talking about. The local culture is very powerful. And some people are good at... Uh, what's the right word, negotiating between the two worlds, and others are not, okay? Which is why, historically, the levies out there have have never done a good job interacting with the rest of society. They would represent, to my mind, that element of the Jewish people that was, uh, you know, uh, uh, secluded. In, a, in Baltimore, they live on Yeshiva Lane, you know, live in, in, uh, you know, in, in some Lakewood-type area, which is only Jews. In other words, an isolated environment, uh, this is the classic model of Judah. To set a base opener, the, the, the meaning of that is that Yehudah should set up uh, you know, a separate all-Jewish area within Egypt called Goshen. Even Yosef agrees with this, because as we know in next week's parsha, he says, I'll bring all my brothers here, but I want them to live in a Jewish neighborhood. <laughs> you know what I want them all to live you know, in Square Town. We'll call it Goshen. Okay? Because it won't work with them uh, for two points of view. One is they'll cause anti-Semitism because they're obnoxious. That's what Jews are. But the other side is they'll assimilate. You understand? So it won't be good either way. So Yosef himself is very interesting. He says, I am able, looking back now, to you know walk on both sides of the street. I'm able to negotiate the two, two worlds. I was able to come to Tzofnas Panef, the big shot in Egypt, and at the same time, as I said before, to remember the Rufa, you know, to be a, a from Jew. But that requires a, a specialized skills, you might say. Right? That requires skills. And uh, one of the, it's just fascinating to me, one of the ways necessary is, do you have to be able to have a certain sense of superiority without flaunting it? In the case of Yosef, he will be Jewish, he will live in Egypt, but everybody's aware that he saved their bacon. Everybody's aware that he's the one who foresaw the famine, okay? And he saved the economy. So, yes, Yosef will be an Egyptian, but he'll be Egyptian, like we say today, with two PhDs and a million dollars and all the rest of it. No, it's clearly someone who's not just bringing his Judaism to the table. The Judaism is part of him, but it's not just what he's bringing to the table. He's bringing his uh, you know, brilliance, his foresight. And so people can't... Ma- if you're an Egyptian... Uh, the natural tendency of Egypt at that time is to look down on the Jews. I don't blame them. Egypt had the great empire and the great civilization as people perceived of it, you know, 4,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. I get it. So the Egyptians would look down on the Jew and the fact that everybody looks down on you 
it's part of the pressure that Jews feel in the Golis to uh, to give up being Jewish. Uh, it's a sad story. What's the main reason in the last 200 years or so, you know, approximately 200, 220 years, that the Jews all went off the derech? Uh, because the Jews, for the first time, left under different circumstances, Goshen, and they entered into Europe. And when they're in Europe, they already were perceived as being inferior and losers. And, uh, and most Jews, this is bad what I'm saying, but it happened, said, you know, if everybody looks at me like I'm inferior, talk I'm inferior. You know, I, I'm not educated in, in secular studies. I don't understand science. I'm backwards. I can't speak French. I can't speak German. I can't speak Russian, and so on and so forth. And then they absorbed it. Now, in earlier generations, the Jews were in ghettos, which had their problems. But as far as mental feeling is concerned, they were in Goshen. You know, it's, I don't care what the guy I'm thinking about me, the hell with all of them, and so on and so forth. But once you emerge out of Goshen, when you give a timole or a sum, when you get out there, if you try to engage with the world, you start to feel the inferiority everybody uh, has towards you. And one of the things you want to do is respond to that. And as we know, in our times, in the last 200 years, what we call the modern period in Jewish history, the way that usually expressed itself with the Jews assimilating, meaning dropping Jewish stuff and picking up Geisha stuff more and more. Uh, now, that's a trick. You and I live in this world. You're always going to pick up Geisha stuff after all. This podcast that I'm delivering at this moment is not in the Hebrew language, it's in the English language. You see what I'm saying? So, don't you, always going to be a certain amount of acculturation. The question is, how much? The, you know, the social scientists will tell you that there's a continuum between uh, acculturation and assimilation. I don't want to get too technical here, but, you know, if you have a, let's put it this way, a Satmar Chassid who's born in America and can't speak English, that guy's not acculturated Bechlal. But on the other hand, someone who picks up English is, to some degree. Now, that's on one extreme of the continuum. If you pick up a little more English, uh, more than broken English, and you can speak regular English, you're a little bit farther along on the continuum. If you get some sort of an education, even like we'd say to elementary school education, which a lot of the people in this country do not have, then you're a little farther along on the, uh, on the continuum. If you get a higher education, and so on and so forth, you know, you're farther along on the continuum. If a person is a college graduate, especially graduate school, that sort of thing, it's far along the continuum, even though you're still acculturated and not assimilated. Assimilate is when you cross a certain point, right? Cross a certain point. The social scientists say it, it's not me. And uh, for Jewish purposes, let's say, for example, when you, uh, I don't know, uh, if you don't know Hebrew, you do know only English, you know, something like that. You don't know Yiddish, when you don't know only English, you cross a certain continuum. Certainly, if you stop keeping mitzvahs, to some degree, you've certainly crossed a line. Uh, the extreme is to go and drop all the mitzvahs. The extreme, extreme, is to intermarry. And the extreme, 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 is to be convert. You know, that's roughly speaking what's going on over here. So there's a continuum. And the brothers of Yosef, you know, don't appear to have been particularly good at negotiating the Egypt business. And Taka, we know when Yosef died, everything went to the devil and they stopped circumcising and all the rest of it, so I'll tell us. But Yosef himself was able to pull it up. Now, in his particular case, the way the story unfolds, as you and I are aware, the way divine providence, if you prefer, <laughs> made it, the story unfolded is, Yosef does not walk into Egyptian society, some, some Evid, you know, and, and how does it go, Evid, whatever it is. 
you know, some little Jewish yutz. Uh, Yosef walks in, brought in as a specialist to interpret the dream of Pharaoh when no one else can. Notice to solve a, a, a fundamental problem of Egyptian society that no one's able to do so. And Pharaoh says, in this week's parsha, what's the language he uses? He says, Ani shamati lechali mor, tishmachon or something like that. No, Pharaoh says to him, I'm bringing you in over here because uh, I hear you have special talents. And he shows those talents. Because as we all know, he first of all does what no one else could do, which was interpret the dream. But then he gives a Lamaisadic interpretation of it, meaning not that the oy vey, you have a famine coming. By the way, let's just say Yosef was able simply to say seven fat years, seven lean years. That itself is impressive. How the heck did he know <laughs> 14 years out, you know, how did he know what the economy was going to look like down the line? Now, I want you to understand if this is Egypt, there's only one way at least that I'm aware of, that you have a famine. Because Egypt should be uh, famine-proof. And the reason is because they have the Nile River. Correct? The other countries in the world, depending on rain and so forth, even the Chumash is there, it's all going to depend on rain. Remember in Dvarim, I shared something, Egypt is, uh, has the Nile River, which, which, which means even without rain, you're always going to have water, plenty of water. I repeat, plenty of water. This is why the Egyptians worship the Nile. I would do so too if I was Egyptian. Makes sense. The Gansevelt is always going crazy, whether it be rain or not. And we in Egypt are blessed by the Nile. It's always giving us water. You can't live without water. I mean, from a low pagan point of view, it makes very good sense. You understand? Know it makes very good sense. Remember Avram, when there was a famine in Canaan, he went to Egypt. Uh, and the Yaakov will do the same thing. Yitzhak wanted to, God said, you can't go. So it, it, you know, Egypt is, is uh, uh, famine-proof. If that's the case, then how can it be possible that there'll be a famine in Egypt? Because Yosef was actually predicting something. I can't say it was unprecedented. I don't know enough about ancient Egyptian history. I don't know if anybody does to know if there were ever famines before in Egypt. But it's got to be kind of rare, if ever. And he says you have seven fat years and seven skinny years. Then it must mean, at least this is the way I understand it, it must mean that Joseph was foreseeing that there'll be some mess up on the Nile River. Uh, you know, the Nile River starts in, uh, in Kilimanjaro, you know, in south, uh, in, in lower, lower down in Africa, what, in Uganda and Kenya and over there, in Ethiopia. If you follow the news today, I mean in an intelligent way, you'll see that Egypt right now is freaking out. They're facing seven uh, uh, lean years. Today, I saw an Al Jazeera a year ago, something like that, they had a, a program which I saw was very interesting, and that was Egypt is mama's today. Egypt is facing a seven lean years. They could die because they have a pop, baby boom Shankamo. They've gone from twenty million in my lifetime to like a hundred and some million. Okay, that's who they are, and it's not enough water. And the countries uh, more south in Africa, like where the Nile River starts, you know, like Ethiopia, Kenya, that, that sort of thing, East Africa. They say, we're not getting enough water. All the water's ending up going to Egypt. We want more for our own purposes to develop the economy in Ethiopia, which needs it badly. It's had many droughts. Or, you know, some of those other countries down there, the black Africa. And Egypt is like freaking because if, if they t divert water lower down, you know, in, in, in Ethiopia and places like that, there won't be enough water in Egypt. If there's not enough water, they die. <laughs> you have tens of millions of Egyptians. There's not enough water, they die. So what do you do? And that brings us in the year 2020 down to Joseph's time with the 2020 BC or whatever it was, you know. Uh, 
you know, way back then, it's, uh, uh, there will be some Zach, uh, you know, this is my understanding, there'll be some Zach in, 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 uh, in uh, Black Africa, in those days, in the time of Yosef, and the waters will be diverted, or maybe poisoned, maybe a, a volcano will belch into it or something like that. All you need is if the waters are fouled and poisoned, you know what I mean, made un, undrinkable and so forth, or if it's diverted in some fashion or other from some natural Zach, or some king in Ethiopia, Egypt is up the creek without a paddle, literally. That's a good phrase. <laughs> you see? Then they're in big trouble. And Yosef does not advise Pharaoh to, you know, do something to prevent the diversion of the Nile. Because he can't. It's all the way deep in Egypt. Uh, I'm sorry, deep way down in, in Africa. I mean, it's far, far away. If you look at the map, it's Mamish far away. Uh, I'm sure somebody clever could connect the dependence of Egypt um, on the origins of the Nile in Ethiopia area to the stories later on of Moses being an Egyptian general when he was young and fighting in Ethiopia. Maybe some connection over there. But I'm not into that right now. This is a Parshish Me case. Uh, Yosef is predicting them that there will be some problem with the Nile. And uh, as we all know, it happened. And he offers them a solution. So right away... The guy is seen like Albert Einstein. You see, he's not just a Jew, Stam de Belterin, Ebed Lazar Tabachim. He's always seen like a genius. You get it? And Pharaoh is blown away. It says, Achrei Elohim, uh, what's the words over there? Achrei Hodi Elohim, Oschos, Kolzos, Ein Novam Bechacham Kamocha. Aren't those the words? I can't find it. But I remember by heart. Ein Novam Bechacham Kamocha. Oh, so wait a minute. Here's this guy, Yosef, who's a Shomer Shabbos, who puts on tefillin if he had them, <laughs> right? You know, that kind of thing. He's still daven chakras. Uh, not with a minion, but daven chakras. <laughs> and uh, so he's a from Jew, and uh, but he's not like a regular from Jew. He's not Reuben or Shimon or Yisachar, Zvul, and Dunnaf, Tolly, all the rest of it. The Pharaoh wouldn't even look at. We have a time for that. As we say in this week's parsha, Lo Yochlu HaMitzrim Lechos Ebrim Lechem. That's the expression said, Kisoeva Hilamitzrayim. The Pashim shot of that is <laughs> that the Egyptians looked down at the Jews, low class. We don't want them. Now, you could interpret it like Donkalus that the Jews ate animals, the Egyptians were animals. But the Pashim shot on that is, Lo Yuchla Kisova Hilamitzrayim. Who wants to eat with a Jew? Look, I get it. <laughs> you get it. <laughs> the guy's like this. I don't want to go to a restaurant if there are Jews eating there. Like that. I hear. Now, <laughs> uh, with all this, Anti-Ivriism, anti-Semitism. Yosef is different. So, of all the Shvatim, Yosef is uh, gifted with this talent because he had this broad vision, which is not typical. He foresaw this in some way. You know, when he saw the sheaves will bow down to me, he's referring, obviously, to the, the famine, you know, and, and, and his rise to power through his correct economic predictions. Alan Greenspan, you know, that sort of thing. So Yosef has this cock uh, that the others don't. Now listen closely. I was in Shul this morning. I just happened to pull up. Just for the heck of it, open at random the Sefer of uh, Rabbi Forschlager that they recently published on, um, on Bracious. And it just, I, really, I just looked at the title and that gave me the whole idea uh, of what I was thinking this morning. 
the 12 tribes are a unit. Um, that means that each of the tribes has, has, has their pluses and minuses. I repeat, their pluses and they have their minuses. The trick, of course, is to assemble the pluses. <laughs> Correct? Uh, like they say, if the baby has his looks and her brains, uh-oh, if it has his brains and her looks, that's better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to assemble the pluses. Uh, anybody can assemble the minuses. So that, by the way, is, is, is called leadership. Uh, you know, uh, CEO, personnel uh, relation management. Thank, you, you find the employee with the right talent in this particular area, not with the weakness. Everybody has weaknesses. The question is, find the strengths. Okay, Sean. So if there are 12 tribes, it means that the Jewish people need all the different tribes, but at the different times and places. You know, uh, in fact, in, in spite of the fact that Yosef was, was good in learning, or at least the father learned when he was Ben Sekunim, but uh, when push came to shove, he made Yehuda later on, seems to Rosh Hashiva. You know what I mean? That's Yehuda's talent. Okay, fine. Uh, Yisachar has Yisachar's talent. And uh, Zvulun has Zvulun's talent. This is the Abarbanel's famous interpretation, Parsha Shichi, Vayichi. When the father will give out the blessings on his deathbed, he'll call attention to the plus and minus of the different tribes. But the point is not to diss the different tribes. The point is to give them uh, insight into what their strengths are, so that the, so they can get together after Yaakov is gone and arrange their ma- their, their common affairs in such a way that it'd be for, for good for Klal Yisrael. Okay? So, uh, Yosef is obviously the guy who knows how to get along with the Goyim. Get along with the Goyim at the sense of acculturation without stepping over the line into assimilation. Right? That's clearly who he was. That you see in this week's Parsha. And next week's. So, and Yosef did it because his... his uh, uh, his brilliance, let's put it that way, I don't like to use that word, but his smarts had been put on display through the famine and his prediction of the Pharaoh's dreams. So Yosef walked in with a high IQ. What I'm trying to say is the other brothers may have also been as smart as Yosef, but he already brought in this idea of dreams, of visions, of seeing a, a larger picture, and um, this gave him the, uh, what shall I say, the shot in the arm, the confidence this came the self-confidence that he could get along uh, with the Egyptians without feeling in fear and having to give in to them, having to change who he was. Now, because if you're Yosef, what are you going to say? Oh, he's a damn Jew? Not true. He's a ata ein navam v'chacham kamocha. Even Pharaoh said that. And so people have to say like this, you know, he's a strange guy. Uh, he is a Jew. He has payas. He wears those funny tits. And yet, you know, uh, the national security of the country depends on him. It's like one of these guys working in the Pentagon, I know one or two, or the or national security apparatus. They're from Jews, they go to Dafyomi, but the Pentagon used them because they're geniuses so they can figure out the cyber stuff and all that, you know, uh, all the high math. So uh, if Yosef comes in with this way, this gives him the ability to uh, walk the walk and negotiate successfully. Now, I'll tell you where I'm going with this. The sin of the brothers was trying to kill out one tribe because they viewed him as a threat, which means that they did not realize that they're a package deal, that they're a unit, and deprived of one of the tribes, they'll be messed up. In other words, what you see in this week's parsha is as follows. Uh, there's a famine in Egypt. I'm sorry, there's a famine everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, let's say Yosef, let's say they had killed Joseph. Let's just say they'd done that, as they succeeded. They pushed him in a pit, uh, 
So they tried to kill Yosef. Let's say they would have killed him. And then a couple years later would have come to famine. They would die. Because Egypt wouldn't have any food either. And so you simply have a mass death. You get it? You have a mass death. Uh, by the time the story's over, in, the, you know, in this week's Parsha, they don't, it's next week's Parsha that they, you know, they all come out of the closet and he reveals himself. But what they're seeing in this week's Parsha is, if not for this guy who saved Egypt, they'd be dead too. What is God telling them in all that? Uh, your survival depends on all 12 of the tribes. <laughs> all 12 of the tribes. Uh, it's kind of remarkable, isn't it? Uh, if you wipe out a whole tribe, uh, it's like taking off a vital limb. You can't survive with it. Now, what's interesting to me, and I'm sure others notice it, is the Jewish people twice came close to wiping out tribes. And they're both the sons of Rachel. Isn't that funny? I'm thinking, of course, of the case where they tried to kill Yosef. That's the big sin that we're dealing with in these parshas. And the other one is when they wiped out Binyamin, almost, in the story of the Pelagish Begiva, in the book of Shoftim. And even there, the moms killed everybody. Now, there was a, a case of battle going berserk. That's what it says. You know, uh, uh, the, the tribe of Binyamin wouldn't punish the rapists in the story of Pelagish Begiva. Uh, you know, like uh, John C. Calhoun, they stand on states' rights. And the other tribes got so angry, and things Mamish got out of hand. That's clear. You know, because why didn't somebody step in and say, I'll be the adult, and, you know, we'll figure out a way to punish the rapists without punishing the rest of the tribe, and let's uh, work something out. You know, um, but it didn't happen. And uh, instead, it turned into war. And the way the war developed, the, the feelings got uh, white hot. And by the time it's over, when they defeated and destroyed the, the Benjaminite army, which is part of the story of the three-day battle of the Pelagish Begiv in the Book of Shoftim, so then once they, everybody was so blood, blood lust that they went on to wipe out the whole tribe of young men, women, and children. That's the famous story. Until there were a few left, and then at the last minute they said, whoops, maybe we wiped out a whole tribe, that's a mistake. Meaning in the light of the Joseph story, they said this is not a good idea, literally to wipe out a tribe. And then they came up with their famous weird solutions to try to, what shall I say, try to provide for a revival of the uh, Benjamin uh, tribe. Uh, but in a funny circumstance, that Benjamin has to marry uh, uh, people from another tribe, you know, because all the Benjaminite women were killed. So they had to find women from elsewhere, as the famous story goes. So isn't that weird? The two sons of Rachel are the ones who at one time or another were threatened with extermination and came close to it. Case of Yosef, they almost killed him. In the case of Benjamin, they almost killed him. Right now, in the case of uh, of uh, Yosef, suppose they would have got rid of him, they would have died in a famine. This is the Torah's way of saying, see, you, you you can't look one step ahead. You have to look fifty steps ahead. And the Torah says you can't kill your brothers. God says not only because it'd be nicey nicey, but hafterecha kamocha and all the rest of it. That's good too. But that's not the reason. The reason is because you can't survive without him. You see, and the reason is simple. Survival in general, especially as a group, requires different uh, skills at different times. It's not all about learning. Sometimes you need people to run the hot solo. I'm not to be funny. I'm not being this to be funny. You know, you also need people, you know, to run the misaskim. You also need people to be lobbyists. You also need people to do all kinds of things out there. That's a claw. That's a, that's the definition of a claw. And in the broad, uh, what's the right word? Meta sense. Uh, if we have claudius role, it means. That Yaakov said, there's no, I mean, divine providence so ordained that it's not just one to shave it or two, uh, but it's, it's got to be 
There are times when you'll need the talents of a Yosef. There are times when you need the talents of a Zvulun, you know. And um, and this is the way, the, the point of the story. So it's a big sin against Klai Yisrael. It's funny. So who were the perpetrators of the sin against Klai Yisrael? Klai Yisrael. Because they tried to kill out Yosef. They didn't hop this point. You know what I'm saying? This is the great mistake they made. Perhaps by the time the story's over, I'm not 100% sure about that, it would be nice for a sermon purpose to say, oh, and they live happily ever after, and then they realize their mistake, and they never did anything like this again. Maybe that's so, maybe it's not so. It's, it's not clear to me. I'm not going to say it's clear if it's not clear. But uh, but one thing but one thing it shows, which is uh, there was a, 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 a recognition of a certain pluralism, a certain type of pluralism, as being necessary for the group survival. Okay, so to use modern, modern terminology, uh, modern terminology, uh, you need all kind of different uh, Jews out there today. Uh, now it's easy to say it in in a broad sense, but it's not so easy in a specific sense because the way Judaism has unfolded in the last two hundred years, particularly in the last hundred years, particularly in the last eighty years or so, is that there's a certain assimilation to to Western corporatism. And corporatism means you try to to, to make it everybody's like you. You try to conquer the market. It's the capitalist model. And the capitalist model, Coca-Cola would like to wipe out Pepsi. I mean, I don't blame them. That's the natural tendency. If I got a business, theoretically, my point is to win. Winning is defined as wiping out the Constitution. You understand? Wiping out the Constitutions. The, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the competition. (laughs) Okay? So, you know, if there's one, if I'm selling a product, another selling a product, it's, you know, theoretically, I'll be Derek HaTorah, read the Chazanish and the, what do you call what's it called? The Emunah B'Tochon. If I got a bakery, if I got a pizza store, that's a good example. I got a pizza store. I want the other pizza stores also to prosper. You know, that famous uh, thing in the Chazanish. I want that also to, to work. I want me, uh, listen, I want to make a Parnosa, and I want the guy across the road to make a Parnosa. But that's in theory. You can't pretend, unless the person's at Sadiq, you said, uh, you can't pretend that really deep down to persons are like this. I got a pizza shop. If the other guy went out of business, I'd have double. <laughs> yeah. It was a natural tendency like that. The firm world, the Jewish world, I should say, has kind of, uh, at least in my analysis, has picked this up from the capitalist environment, and therefore everything's a zero-sum game. So all the Lubavitchers like everybody else to become Lubavitch. That's just the way it goes. All the, uh, you know, uh, the, the yeshiva types, everybody to become yeshiva type. All the different groups, everybody become like them. The Orthodox certainly want everybody to become Orthodox. Okay, they don't want they, they want a zero sum game. Uh, when when the Reform and the Conservative were in their heyday, now they're in decline and they're they're leaving the scene. But in their heyday, they also figured uh, we will uh, wipe the floor with the competition. Everybody become Reform. Everybody become Conservative. It never was an idea, broadly speaking, and still isn't today. What shall I say? You know that there should be Ruvin Shimon Levi Yudi Sucker is one done not totally God Usher. You know the the a Yisrael approach of the type, which means a Klal Yisrael includes from as well as not from. What do you mean? Everybody's supposed to be from? You know, everybody's supposed to be Shemesh Shabbos. There's no excuse for somebody not to be Shemesh Shabbos. I know it. I get it. I understand the rhetoric. You see, from these parshas, it's not so simple. You understand? There's a need of a Klal as a Klal. The problem is since everything's been so. Uh, a corporatist, so capitalist, so zero sum that there's a winner and a loser. So the result has been that uh, you know I hunker down, and uh, you want to change me? No, no, I'm not going to change. As a matter of fact, I'm going to try to wipe you out. You get? I'm going to try to wipe you out. 
the Frum, generally speaking, have been scarred by the experience of modernity, and uh, it looked like there was some grand plan to wipe out all from Yiddishkeit uh, by headquarters of anti-Frum, which is not true. And uh, take Israel, for example. I'll give me an example. Take Israel. Ben-Gurion had a plot to wipe out all the Frum, Frumkite. It's not exactly true. I mean, I believe me, I know better than anybody. It's not exactly true that way. Uh, wasn't a grand plan to do so. But it seemed that way. And therefore, we're going to do it in reverse. <laughs> By the time we're finished, the way things are going in Israel today, give it another 50 years, 100 years, and everybody be from. Something like that. We'll wipe out the other way. Um, this is the idea. Let's kill Yosef. <laughs> you understand? He's a threat. His dreams are a threat. Uh, hear what I said? It's a threat. If these guys prosper, we go under. Therefore, we have to wipe out that. And you see from the story of Yosef, at least to me, that you know the good Lord didn't work it out that way. He said you won't be able to kill him, and not only not only you won't be able to kill him, a time may come in the future where you find yourself in a situation where you talk and need that person, because without Yosef, they would have died from the famine. Egypt also would have died from the famine, as I said. And so that's why the Rambam, at least to me, says in the famously in the Morid of Bukham, I think I quoted last week that the the, the sin offering. The classic sin offering is the goat of the Chatas Atibor, and uh, that's because of the you know the soundness of Yosef when they they said they 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 took a, the skin of a goat, you know, and uh, the blood of a goat. I mean, and said it was uh, the blood of Yosef. Uh, so the Rambam is also from the old school, and the Rambam is saying the biggest sin is to uh, what shall I say? The biggest sin is to tr- is to uh, try to wipe out part of the claw uh, because you need all different parts of the claw. To use modern terminology, when they needed guns in the Warsaw Ghetto to fight against the Germans, when they finally decided to do that, they had to go to Jewish gangsters and prostitutes and pimps and things like that, because they're the type of low life that would have guns or access to them. So there's a time you need everything, okay? Now, it's very hard for us in the, in the modern world to assimilate this. First of all, most of Kali Israel is gone. Uh, you and I are living in an age where uh, the Ten Tribes are over. Uh... It's possible they're not even coming back. As you know, it's a machlokas in the Mishnah. Uh, so all we got today is uh, Yehuda and Binyamin and Levi and Kohanim. What happened to the others? Now, first of all, I don't know. Nobody knows. Uh, I mentioned Menashe, but Israel last week, he was fascinated by this, always trying to find the ten lost tribes. But as far as we can see, they ain't coming back. Now, you never know. Maybe with the DNA, something strange will pop up and the ten tribes will come back. I'm serious. You know, we don't know. It's impossible. The way we live in a time of frenzied scientific uh, change and progress all the time, to make any kind of absolute statements uh, would be stupid because it simply reflects the primitive nature of science in the year 2020. Because science, by definition, is always unbelievably primitive. Connected the science of 100 years from now or 50 years from now. Right? Uh, <laughs> to, today... Anybody remember what what are they called the VHS, <laughs> all, all that stuff? You know, uh, the science, the technology is, is always being leapfrogged. So it seems to us, since the destruction of the, the, the kingdom of the north, that the ten tribes are gone, and Yehuda's not even here. I'm sorry, excuse me, Yosef's not even here. Here we're talking about Yosef and all his talents, all the rest of it. Whatever happened to Ephraim and Manasseh? They went down the tubes. What is it? Uh, twenty five, twenty seven hundred years ago, you know. With the, with with Ashur, uh, you know, the Malchus uh, Yisrael in the north. One can only, if the Klal is not gone, 
at least the way I understand it. I mean, I could be wrong, but the way I understand it, one of two things is possible. Either they're somewhere, and one day through the DNA kind of stuff, they'll discover people are Jewish. Could be in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Shmakistan, Klakistan. They'll find out from DNA, you know, uh, and through new science, these people are actually the ancient tribe of Yisachar and Kenzan, who knows? Uh, that's one possibility. And the other possibility is that when the tribes were destroyed or exiled and therefore lost, a chalik of them managed to escape and intermingle with the Jews in the kingdom of the south. There's some evidence of that. So by that I mean that uh, when I see you, I mean, I'm a Kohen. At least my family says it's Kohanim. I told you many times, no one nowadays can prove anything. You can't prove anything. Nobody can prove they're Jewish even. Kabbalah Khamenei can't prove they're a coin. We go by our family Maseras. That's all. There's no proof. Uh, I mean, proof, proof. You just come back with it, what they say. But I mean, proof, proof, proof. So, uh, let's say I'm a coin. Let's say Yisrael. So, a coin is a coin. But if you're a Yisrael, it's possible, listen to what I'm saying, it's possible that you go way back when, assuming that you do, to the tribe of Yehuda. Okay? That's the working assumption. Alternatively, you go all the way back to the tribe of Yemen. That's the other working assumption. Because when we say Kohen Levi Yisrael, Yisrael means whoever survives from the non-Kohanim, non-Levium. And that would mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, the kingdom of the south. Judah and Benjamin, Yehuda ben Yemen. If you want to be very technical on me, which is fine, you might come from Shimon. Because Shimon was actually located inside the kingdom of Yehuda. If you know how that works. So, again, it's a Kohen Levi Yisrael. Let's say you're Yisrael. So if I want to be biblical about it, and, it's, and and I want to assume that you really are Jewish, that means you go all the way back to Yehuda or um, Binyamin or Shimon. Okay. So what about the other tribes? Forget about it. No, no, no. No, no, no. Some of the north, uh, Reuven, Yisachar Zvulun, Don Naftali, God Asher, Ephraim Menashe, moved south. There are certain passages in the book of Malachim and Devi that talk about this. There are some. And uh, you may be, it's not at all outlandish, you may be coming from Ephraim or Manasseh or any of the other tribes. If that is true, then again, one day the science or something like that will be able to divide, you know, uh, distinguish between the tribes. I don't know. I'm just, just like Jules Verne, you know, distinguishing the tribes. And it may turn out that you are from Yosef. And uh, that would be interesting if you turn out to be you know, one of these Joseph types that is able to uh, master the American or Western society at the same time be an example of a from Jew. And then people say, well, we had it in the genes. <laughs> you know what I mean? It goes back all the way back. So these are uh, fundamental themes, it seems to me, broad themes that you discover in a fascinating way in Parshish case. The fact that it always comes out in Hanukkah time is always <laughs> remarkable because uh, Hanukkah represents the other side, uh, they were not able to walk the walk and handle it with the Jews. These uh, Hellenists, these other guys that caused all the trouble in Hanukkah, obviously were not Joseph types. Uh, they encountered Asius Potiphar, quote-unquote, and fell for her. Uh, you know, Asius Greece, as it were, and fell for her. And I don't necessarily mean the women either. I about the culture and all the rest of it. And they lost their Jewish identity and became hostile to the Jewish identity, and they the ones who launched the persecution, I'm talking about these Jews, launched the persecution of the rest of Judaism, which triggered the the um, the Maccabean revolt. 
had there been a Joseph around at that time, uh, things probably would have turned out to be different. Okay, but they didn't have those talents, did they? Uh, they were actually Kohanim and Levim. Most of the perpetrators were were Kohanim and Levim, and Cohen uh, and Levi has their talents. But what I just said is not a talent of the Kohanim and Levim. To be a Yosef and be able to make it in both worlds is not a specific talent of the Kohanim and Levim. As a matter of fact, the Levis uh, wiped out Shechem. No, the, the Levim were not good at m- massaging the difference between the Jews and the Goyim. Uh, they turned into a, a, what should I say, a violent or, or a confrontational kind of relationship. And sometimes a confrontational relationship is good. Other times, a confrontational relationship is not good. Um, so uh, you need, therefore, all these different resources and diff- what we call the, the 12 tribes in order to make the whole thing work for the claw. Anyway, that's what strikes me are some of the interesting um, contrasts between Hanukkah on the one hand and... Uh, what do you call Parshish Mikates on the other hand? I'll close. I just thought this is a dry tour. I always remember every year, which kind of bears this out, which bears this out. Uh, and that is, I have a book somewhere. Uh, there was this guy, Bloch, I think his name was. And he was, I think, an Orthodox rabbi or maybe a conservative rabbi, or either he's on the left of, of the Orthodox or the right of the conservative, out in Iowa somewhere, Idaho, Idaho, whatever, long ago. And he, uh, was a connoisseur of homiletics, and he did wrote these books in Hebrew about different darshanim, including contemporary rabbis in the 20th century, but also the classical guys. The classical one is very good. The one in contemporary is just interesting. But he had something from a rabbi in South Africa, where apparently it was the UJA, the Israel Appeal, was always on Shabbos Hanukkah, which would meet Kate's usually. And I just I read it many years ago, and it stuck with me. And this was a, a rabbi in South Africa, I think in the late 50s, if I remember correctly. And uh, he's given the Israel speech, and it goes like this. He said, my friends, Joseph was a remarkable guy. He had broad vision, and he saw the future. He had the sun, the moon, the stars. This was, he had dreams, okay? He wasn't a regular jerk. He had dreams. And these were significant dreams. Not daydreams, dreams. Visions of the future. Um, foretold portentous events affecting the Jewish people in the world. And then Joseph is sold as a slave into Egypt. In Egypt, he no longer has any dreams. <laughs> right? He no longer has any dreams. Instead, he survives by interpreting the dreams of the Egyptians for them. For them. They have dreams, but they don't know what their dreams means. And he's able to tell them what their dreams mean. The butler, the baker, Pharaoh, and all the rest of it. You see? That's how he rises to power. He doesn't have dreams. They have the dreams, and he tells them what their dreams mean. No, he becomes the interpreter of their culture. And he concluded by saying, my friends, we're tired of being the interpreter of the Gaisha dreams to the Gaim, uh, which is the role the Jews have have, uh, have, have uh, played in the 19th and 20th century. Once the Jews left the ghetto and entered into Western civilization, they became, you know, uh, for better or worse, the interpreters of culture for the Gaim, the Gaisha culture for the Gaim. All the Jews flocked into, critici- you know, a, a literary criticism, uh, analysis, Idea, Western ideas and all the rest of it. Uh, my friends, we're tired of interpreting the dreams for them. We want to go back to Israel and dream our own dreams for ourselves. In that spirit, I ask you to give money for the Israel appeal or something like that. That's a very good speech. Anyway, with that, I bid you a good Once again, I thank Dr. Freeman for sponsoring, and we hope he will have others step forward as well.
For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.